Um, we're going to be bouncing around through a lot of scripture today, um, but where we're going to kind of settle in is um, Acts chapter 2. So, as always, we'll stand while we read here. <clears throat> we're going to start in uh, verse 22, and we go all the way through verse 38. The text reads, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness, with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, <clears throat> and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for an opportunity to come to a place where we can study your word together and have access to your scripture, where there's so many places where it's unattainable. Um, places may have just sections of scripture, um, and if they do become fortunate enough to possess their own copy of a, a full canon, they may only have one to an area, and when that happens, they, they stop and they throw celebrations or parades um, just to show you that they're thankful that you've saw fit to give them uh, the fullness of your word, God. And so I pray that that would be something that would be with us, that we would learn to have a reverence and a thankfulness uh, for your scripture, God, because it's the, the only way that we can know you any better. Um, that's the only way that we can see you clear, God. Um, I pray that 
today that you would move through your word as we go through a, a lot of different sections and pray for the clarity of mind because even as I was preparing this week, there's a lot of areas that I was confused in of how it's, it meshes together, but God, we know that no matter when your word is preached, as long as it's preached in the way that it was written, um, it's truth and, and it will do something uh, in the heart of the believer. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this group that we have, God. We love you. Amen. <clears throat> so you guys can uh, hang out in Acts. I'll be kind of moving around a lot, but that's where we're going to anchor at uh, later in here. So we'll hang out. Um, if you care to turn there to go through the larger part of the text that I'll be in, it'll be Exodus chapter 7. And I'll have to give a kind of a quick overview. The past couple of weeks, Paul has been, most of you have been going through Matthew. And we've always done a call to worship, and it's trying to get us in the right frame of mind um, and the right heart as we go into studying the Word and trying to take information from it. Um, so it allows us to try to humble ourselves before God, but um, there's a couple things that, that Paul talked about last week that really uh, made me start thinking, which was how God is not only about working in the salvation and the redemption of his people. Um, there's a lot of other things that God does, but because we're so inward focused, a lot of the time it seems like the best thing that God could do is redeem his people, um, which that is absolutely one of the things that we are thankful for most, probably the thing that we are thankful for most, um, and it's a huge part of God's character and who he is, uh, but it's not all God is, which is the issue that we run into so many times going through scripture is that we take attributes of God or characteristics of God and make that the totality of God. Um, it seems like we cling to things that we like about him. Um, and stray away from things that make us feel uncomfortable and we don't like about him. And it causes this issue where it's, it's idolatrous because you formulate a God that is not the one of the Bible. And so a, a way to, to kind of figure that out, um, there's, there's really, like, it seems like the Bible almost preaches two separate ones. When you look in the Old Testament and you look in the New Testament, they, they seem so radically opposed to each other, but if you can start to sift through everything and see the bigger picture as opposed to being really close in on Scripture, um, we see a God that seems more glorious to us than the one that we know um, already. So I'll be in Exodus 7, but I just kind of want to recap what's happening in the first six chapters. Uh, it's really hard, Paul, and I talked this morning to not be able to just go through a text and preach forward to it, because then you have to go back and spend a lot of time breaking it down. Um, but so Exodus is going to begin where, uh, obviously, Genesis leaves off. Joseph has been kind of the mediator there in Egypt, um, and he has, well, he was mediating for the Jewish people to Pharaoh, and he has now died as they go in. Um, God has been faithful in his promises to Abraham, where we see in the first chapter he says that he made them a great and mighty people in the nation. And so that fulfills what he told Abraham already or is a part of that fulfillment. Moses comes along later in that story. And one thing I talked about earlier was how today we're going to look at this 
sovereignty and the providence of God there. And we see the providence of God kick in right when Moses is put down the Nile, where, kind of break down the word, like providence is best defined as God's protective care um, of his people, um, where sovereignty is kind of mixed in there sometimes, where sovereignty is more like God's position. Um, he is a sovereign. He is over all things. Um, providence is kind of how God works in all things. So Moses is tossed down a Nile, most treacherous river uh, in the world, and there's all kinds of things that could have gone wrong. He could have drowned. He could have been trampled by hippos in the water, I guess, um, eaten by a crocodile. Tons of things that had to go right for Moses to end up where he did. Um, and, of course, God uses that, um, and he brings him into the house of Pharaoh where he's then establishing someone who will do the work of God and get his people out of Egypt. So, of course, God becomes known to Moses in Exodus 3 um, as he makes himself known as the burning bush. And we have the first time that someone really interacts with God in a, in a physical way. There's an actual... Um, thing in front of him, wouldn't say a being, but a thing um, there speaking into him. So that's where Moses is commissioned, and he's given these rules to go and tell Pharaoh all of these different things, um, to tell about how God is going to deliver his people, um, how Pharaoh should go ahead and let them go so he can avoid all the judgment that's going to come on the people. And of course, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. These things don't happen. And that's where we go into Exodus 7, which is where the plagues start. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read Exodus 7, 14 through 21, which is another good patch of Scripture. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water, and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed, thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water of the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned into blood. And the fish of the Nile died. And the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt. So, the point of the plagues here is that God's name is being defiled. Um, throughout Egypt, and for a long time before Moses came, there was a, a good uh, chunk of time between Joseph and between Moses, and there was no one to 
spiritually lead Israel in that time. Um, they had lost all sight of who God was, um, and they, they were a lost people, which they continue to be a lost people through Scripture and even through today. Um, but here is where I found it really interesting and where it ties in with last week, um, that we have to note God's intent for the release of his people. Um, and here again, since we're inward focused, a lot of times we'll think of things like um, because there's oppression and from a human standpoint, oppression is wrong. Um, from God's standpoint, obviously oppression is wrong, but that's not the reason that God moved and wanted his people out. We see that he says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Um, there was no other point that God spoke on for the release of his people other than them to serve their God. Um, it wasn't about being treated unfairly. Um, it wasn't about they had been good workers or they deserved anything. It was about the worship um, of their God. And so here, going through all the ten plagues, what we see is God is challenging all of the gods of Egypt and he continues to win through each of these things. Um, Egypt <clears throat> had, I think it's 100, I know it was over 114, I think it was, or 100, it was, I think it was 114 um, different deities that they had claimed to serve um, throughout there. And I'm just going to focus on this, this first part here because this is the biggest one. Um, where they're talking about the Nile, they had um, a god who they called Kanum. And he was considered to be the god of the Nile. He was the god of life. He was believed to have created all life on a potter's wheel. And through that, he then placed what he created in every woman's womb. Um, so, obviously, god of the Nile is not really like, I mean, it's not a huge thing as far as title goes when you start comparing it with other things like the god of life. Um, which that ties into the Nile because obviously without water, there's no life um, for an agricultural area. Uh, you see here it says that all the fish died. That's going to be a main source of food, especially in the desert. There's not a lot of game running around there. Um, so God has already struck there and stopped all clean water coming in, um, which is going to feed all the crops that they have. It's going to sustain his people. And the biggest source of food um, is also stopped here. Um, and this is the part that I, I thought was really interesting was that they believe that he created life out of mud on a potter's wheel and he placed that life in a mother's womb. Um, so we see like the Egyptians have half of an idea of who God is, but they don't have a whole concept of who God is. Um, so while things like read almost identical in some parts, um, you can see that they don't have a high view of who God is or have a high expectation of who he is because they had to have 100, and, 100 to 115 different gods to do all of the jobs that we serve one for. Um, a lot of them serve the same function. Like if you go through Egyptian history, you'll see like, Ten sun gods and ten water gods and all, all things like that, um, which even proves to that point even further, even those gods, with as many as they had, had to have assistance to do their job. Um, 
And what we see is that it's while the Egyptians um, were worshiping a very similar God, they missed out on what the God of the Bible was doing um, in his people. <clears throat> so we have a, a real issue where you can have correct views of God or who he is, um, and it just, you can, you can be so close and still be so far off um, if you just pick certain things. All of these things that they believed, um, the main four points that they believed about this God are all true of Yahweh, but they're not all that he is, and to serve half of a God is to serve no God. Um, so, there's a, here's a couple things like we, we've talked about in our small groups and things like that. Often a, a lot of us have read um, A.W. Tozer's writings, um, and I started rereading Knowledge of the Holy this year, and there were two quotes in it almost side by side um, when I was reading through this week, and I was like, they have to be in there because they draw such an important uh, contrast to this sermon. Um, and Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, it's going to shape and define everything that you do in life, um, how you view God and how high you view him and how high you esteem him and his word and his son and his spirit. Um, these things are going to dictate the pattern in which you live um, daily. And another thing that he said was, without doubt, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. Um, that's like these don't require like anyone to expound on them. They're really straightforward, but um, like it, it's obvious that the, the mightiest thing that your mind can entertain is the thought of God. Like I don't know how I'm sure everybody in the room has done it. I don't know how many times I've laid awake in bed at night and just been stressed out about heaven or like how that's going to play out salvational issues of friends or family that aren't saved. Um, there, there's so many things that come along with thinking about God, but if you don't do what he says first, if you don't have a high thought of God and have high esteem for him, everything else is going to crumble. Um, you will be completely stressed in all things and not be able to be consoled. Um, so all this to say um, that God is completely and fully deserving of high esteem, high thoughts, and his people pouring themselves out and worship to him every day. Um, so kind of like I, I talked about earlier here, last week Paul talked about um, God having bigger fish to fry um, than just restoring his people, um, which after kind of reading through a lot of texts, like I, could, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, because we are so focused on us that we don't see uh, that there's other things at stake. Um, but God is more about himself than he is for the people of him. Like, that is what drives him. God's own character is what drives him to do these things. So God first has to be within the character of himself to be able to act and redeem and restore his people. Um, so God is about restoring the worship of his own name um, and to have his people and all people, hopefully, have a right view of God. And one day, everyone will have the correct view of God. 
Um, so whatever you think about God right now, of course, I'm hoping and believe that we will learn about God for eternity, and there will, there's never going to be um, an end to the knowledge of him, um, which is exciting. But one day, everyone is going to, in an instant, have a recollection of who God is and who he truly is and who we served or who we didn't serve. Um, and we'll be accountable in that. Um, so I want to talk about both of those points, the redemption of God's people and also the redemption of God's worship. Um, we see early, early in the Bible, both of these things are addressed almost right next to each other. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel that we ever preached. So we know that the redemption of God's people through Christ is high on God's list. Um, that is something that he has been working in since before the foundations of the earth that we read in Acts um, 2. And also God bringing back um, the worship of his name. We see that happen in Genesis 4.4. So I was not prepared to turn there, but I'm going to just to read that to us. Okay. Uh, I'll read the, I'll just start in verse one. Uh, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock um, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So we see there that we can, we can infer from the text that because Cain and Abel, they've obviously, between verse 1 and verse 2, two kids are born. Um, so we know that there's a time frame there. But for in verse 3 and 4 and 5, they're offering sacrifices to God. We know that that's already something that was implemented prior to this text. We would assume that it's something that was implemented as soon as the fall happened, um, that there is worship of God through the sacrifice um, of animals for atonement and the sacrifice and burning of crops um, as worship. Um, to say that, God, you are worth me not having this to have right standing with you. Um, so we know that those are two things that, um, even though they're separated by 15 verses or so, um, we know that those probably came together right at the same time. Those are two institutes that God set forth um, really close together because they're two things that he is very passionate about, is the worship of his name and the redemption of his people. And you can't have one without the other. Um, well, you can have the worship of God's name because his name will be worshipped one way or another, but you can't be a redeemed person and not give proper worship to God. So this is kind of where we uh, get into the gospel portion of this, which puts us back in Acts 2, um, and we're not going to cover all of that text because it would just take days. Um, so Acts to 22 through 24 is where we're going to be at. Um, and this reads somewhere on the first page that I have here. There you go. Um, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God 
with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up to the accord, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. So, this is the first time that the gospel is being preached outside of when Jesus is talking, uh, talking to his disciples or speaking to crowds. Um, this is the first time an apostle has actually gone um, and preached, and we're going to know this is Pentecost here. Um, so, what we see here is where it says that this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that God was active in this before we ever had our hands involved in anything. Um, it says it was the only definite plan, meaning that God did not have a contingency plan for the garden. Um, he wasn't caught off guard by it. He did, I think, like he fully expected and knew for things to be the way that they were. Um, if God wanted to create everything uh, completely perfect, which he did, and sustain it completely perfect, he would have done that. Um, he is completely within his ability to do that. Uh, and a lot of time we don't give him credit for it um, because as we want to take re- the, the moral or honorable way and take responsibility for things, um, you know, we want to say, well, I was the one who sinned or I did this. If, if God did not intend for that to happen so that he could be glorified through, um, the, through Christ on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, it wouldn't have happened. Um, so this was not something that God was caught off guard by, um, something that he did not know was going to happen. He was involved in this intricately before the foundation of the world. Um, and this is what gives so much beauty to the gospel, um, which is, it's, uh, there's an accusation that's given here which says that he was delivered over to the hands of sinful men who you crucified, um, which is true. Those, that people group crucified Christ. Um, and it shows later that after the full gospel is preached, it does its work, and they were cut to the heart, and they were given the opportunity to repent and be baptized and receive the Spirit and receive adoption of sons. Um, but through here we see one of the, the most beautiful things about God is we see the Old Testament God and the New Testament God kind of merge and collide here, um, where Old Testament we see justice, wrath, fury a lot of the time. Um, and it's really hard to see the nurturing, merciful side of God, which we see a lot more in the New Testament. And we obviously see that because that was God's plan. His fullness is completed in Christ and the Spirit. Um, since he's a Trinitarian being, like God is complete in those things, in himself. Um, so, Old Testament is that justice has to be served um, in all of these matters. But God can't forgive us or excuse us on the grounds of justice. Um, justice meaning fairness, um, being even keel across the board, um, peaceful, I guess, like where there's, there's no uh, enmity between things because everything has been set right and there's no way that things can be set right through us um, or through anything that we do. So 
as much as we're in a, a human society where we desire justice, that's not what we want. Um, and it's also not what we got. Um, God also delights in mercy. Um, and because of the mercy of God and that he grants that to us, Christ then takes justice for us and that is replaced with mercy. Um, Christ takes justice for all of his people and in so doing, God was, says, was pleased to crush him. Um, so to bear all sins and iniquities on a cross and in his body um, and let God completely crush and destroy all that's within that and then start using that to, to finish the work that he starts here early, which is the redemption of his people. Um, and God does all this that he can be fully worshipped as opposed to being worshipped as one or worshipped as the other. He can be worshipped as both. Um, so this is where I said we'd be skipping through a lot of scripture, and I'm just going to read um, quite a few verses here. And that is, I'll start here, and you can just write them down if you want to and check them out later, but I'll read them accurately according to the ESV. Um, Ezekiel 20, 22 says, But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name that it should, be, it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Ezekiel 20, 24, And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, then repeats again, for my own sake, I do for my own sake, I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Psalm 23, 3, the coffee mug verse. Um, he restores my soul, and he leads me into paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 31, 3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Psalm 109.21 But you, O God my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Psalm 143.11 For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. 3 John 7 For they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. <clears throat> 1 John 2.12. I don't know why that's out of order. Um, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Matthew 5.16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10.22. 
and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 19.29 And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 24.9 They will deliver you up for tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Romans 11.36 For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Revelation 2.3 I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Revelation 21.23 And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. All of these which there are innumerable more verses in the Bible that will say something to that effect. Everything here, every time God acts or moves or does something, um, gives something to his people, starts a work in his people, finishes a work in his people, we see that there's always the disclosure that it's not about the person he's doing it for, it's for his name's sake. Um, God is ultimately about God and his glory. Um, and through that, the, probably the, the thing that glorified God the most in history was God being able to completely eradicate sin through the body of Christ um, for his people. And the death, burial, and resurrection, Christ on the cross would have been the pinnacle of God's glory. And I would be convinced that that is the reason that this was the divine plan before the foundation of the world, according to God's foreknowledge, was that God knew exactly what was going to glorify his name and magnify his name the most. And the thing that it was, was for God himself to die for his people and to redeem them unto himself. Um, so here I've just got, we're going to close out here. I've got kind of four points um, in closing to take from the sermon today. Um, one is obviously have high ideas of God. Um, and having a high thought and having a high idea of who God is comes from Scripture. Um, there's no knowledge that comes of God apart from Scripture. Or there's no true knowledge of God that comes about any other way than Scripture. Um, that's If you care to know who he is and figure it out even further, the only way you can do it is by looking closer uh, in his word, which he's given to us. Uh, second thing is understand why God acts, which a lot of the time is an impossible thing to do. We don't know why things are the way that they are a lot of the time, but one consistent in that is that God is about what gives God glory and honor and praise and what brings the most glory to his name. So when God acts, which is he's just in a constant um, of action here, um, there's always things that 
that are moving and shaking around us, that, that are done by God's hand, it's ultimately because God is about himself um, and making sure that he's not robbed of his own glory. Number three would be understanding redemption. So this happened, obviously, by way of Christ on a cross and by the grace and mercy of God. Um, what, I, what I love about that part in Acts is that it shows that you and I were completely passive in salvation. Um, God was the one who was active there. Um, there's, there's nothing. God didn't, we didn't sin and God say, I'm going to send Christ because now they have to have a way back to me. It was done by the foreknowledge of God. He knew before everything that that was going to happen, and that's what gave God the most glory. Um, so we have to realize that redemption happens through Christ on the cross and the mercy of God because God delivers to us mercy while he delivers to Christ justice. And then ascribing proper worship to God. Um, if you can't worship unto God daily, through the cross of Christ, um, you'd be really hard-pressed to say that you're a Christian um, at all, which is a convicting thing for me because a lot of the time it's, a, it's in the back of your mind and you think it's, it's kind of in you all the time, you're aware of it, um, but it's not something that's a, kind of a constant, um, continual thank you um, before you get out of bed, thanking God for what he's done, um, for the sacrifice that he did make for the glory of his name, and, but he didn't have to. Um, you know, God would have gotten just as much glory out of eternal damnation for everyone as he would have for salvation for people because God would have been just um, and he would have been a good judge in punishing sin um, in hell. But he chose to go a different way, still punish some that way, and go through mercy um, as another means of worship um, and way to think highly about him. Um, and so that's really about it. The other one thing that I just kind of wanted to say was I've also been kind of, this isn't about the sermon at all, this is about our, our church here. Um, I just, throughout this week, um, working full-time and doing a, a sermon is incredibly hard work. Uh, and I was feeling really, really bad about the amount of time that I spend um, praying for Paul and Zach um, and even Christy and Allison who you know, spend extra time doing this. Um, I don't have three kids or a kid, another one on the way, and a wife to take care of and work a job at the same time and be able to be completely faithful to the Word of God. Um, at the same time and pour myself out for people um, like they do. And so I just wanted to just make sure that as we, we go forward in this, that that's something that is one thing that we pray for every day is the leadership in the church because um, we've been beyond uh, blessed and, and given um, shepherds for, the, for our church um, to take care of, of their sheep. And I'm really thankful for that. And I'm sure everybody else is here too. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just pray and be blessed.